and welcome to Joe's Voice. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with a very special guest, Stephen Ira. Stephen Ira is a poet, filmmaker, and actor based in New York City. He graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop in 2019, where he was a comrade of friend of the show, Frankie James Thomas, James Frankie Thomas, rather. I think it's just James Thomas, actually. James Thomas? Okay. Yeah. Well, and he graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop in 2019, and he was a Lambda Literary Fellow in 2013 and 2014. His film, I Have to Think of Us as Separate People, has been screened worldwide, including at Newfest, Outfest, and the New Orleans Film Festival. And last year, he starred in the film Framing Agnes, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and won an Audience Award and the Next Innovator Prize. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me on, Peyton. Yeah, it is a total pleasure to have you here. We're accompanied by a nude mannequin. Yes. Does this have a name? No, although when I bought it, which there are two mannequins. Oh, yes, two. Two nude mannequins, yes. I bought them for $60, so I guess they were $30 a piece. And the person who sold them to me very specifically was like, the headless one. I'm really close with that one. Oh. <laughs> Be really gentle and nice to her. <laughs> so, yeah, they she don't looks have names. Lovely. She's wearing a purple necklace and another pendant. The pendant was actually given to me by a writer named Thor Bleis. Okay. Who, especially if I don't know, I don't know what your listener demographic is, but Thor writes kids' books. Okay. So people might, and he, he writes picture books. People might enjoy. Oh, fabulous! Those. Yeah, we've had children's book author. We have a, we've had a lot of children's book authors on the show before. I can tell you, if you want to know what our podcast demographics are, I actually have that information at least for our Spotify listeners. <laughs> the really funny thing is that there's a larger percentage of non-binary listeners than men, which like really gives you the picture. <laughs> this is yeah, this is fun. Let's do this. So, our all-time listener demographics. So we're seventy-seven percent. United States, the gender breakdown is 81% female, 11% non-binary, and only 6% male, and then 2% not specified. So Uh (laughs) that's the gender breakdown. And then age-wise, we're mostly in the 23 to 34 sweet spot with some sizable rep from the 35 to 44 set. I mean, shout out. I love all of you. Even our 3% in the 60 plus category. Love that you're here. (laughs) So Steven, thank you for being here. And what is your relationship with Little Women? My relationship with Little Women is actually, I realized something important about it. When I set out, when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, I'm going to reread Little Women, the whole thing in my head, in my childhood memory of it. And I think I may have had an abridged version or something, which would have infuriated child me. Had I realized at the time, in my head, I was like, that's a 250 page novel. And it's not. It's a really long novel. Yeah. I guess not really by 19th century standards, but it's quite a long book. And so I didn't manage to to reread the whole thing. And there's just so much more of it than I remembered. And I was thinking of it as kind of like a novel of childhood. But in a way, it's actually much more a novel of adolescence. It really made me want to spend some real time with it because I'm so I'm very glad we're doing this. I think a lot theoretically about adolescence and kind of what particularly Americans deploy the category of adolescence to do or to mean or how they deploy it in order to make meaning in the context of specifically the heterosexual family. And I'm a Joe for sure. So I have a kind of tense relationship with 
the domestic sphere that Little Women portrays. And I think it's really fascinating to watch the ways in which it's a book that both is invested in enforcing a really specific idea of virtue and normativity, and also a book that is, you know, totally structured by the fact that it's written by this woman who clearly found herself in her life in quite a tense relationship with those very norms. So yeah, it was really rewarding to go back to it, and especially to read this chapter, which really activates the angry wages for housework feminist in me. Yes. But before we started recording, I was like, Peyton, this chapter is so confusing. Suddenly there are children. <laughs> and you were like, yes, yeah, she has two children in the course <laughs> of the chapter. And I was like, okay, I thought that might have been happening, but I was so confused. I feel like a freshman who's like, I don't understand the reading. <laughs> Yeah, she really skips kind of right over it. As you said, I'll ask you to recap the chapter in a minute, but a lot of this is taken up by the early newlywed years and specifically a couple of conflicts between Meg and John Brooke, her new husband. And then this sort of a paragraph that's like, and then the sweetest thing that can happen to a woman happened to Meg. And then suddenly Lori walks in and there are babies. And so you're supposed to just infer pregnancy and childbirth. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of assumed that it was because they've had a little bit of conflict earlier in the chapter. So I sort of thought that it was like the sweetest thing that could happen to a woman happened to her. Like she settled into her new marriage and then Lori comes in and interrupts and now there are children. Right. And since Lori's suddenly showing up in a domestic sphere is kind of one of the mechanics by which the novel works. Yes. I was really ready for it to just be like, now Lori's here. I wonder what (laughs) wacky problem Lori has in store. And then they surprise Lori and they're like, yes, there are these babies. And I was very much like Lori in that moment. Like I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess, so you've answered the question that I always ask, which is which March sister are you? You're a Joe. Do you want to elaborate on that? Rereading the novel, actually, especially in terms of thinking of it as a novel of adolescence, I was really struck by how beautiful and kind of just like loving, but in a way like intensely, I don't know, I guess for me, there's these descriptions of Joe's embodiment and her physicality and how no matter what she tries to touch, she smashes it. I was reading this scene actually too. I work at an elementary school. I maybe should have made that clear. I work (laughs) at an elementary school and I tutor teenagers. So I'm around young people a lot. And I was ended up actually reading part of it out loud to a little girl at work recently. She's in first grade. And it was the part where Meg and early in the book where Meg and Joe get invited to that party. And Joe is like, I'm not going to wear gloves. And Meg is like, I literally can't go if you don't wear gloves. (laughs) And then you find out that Joe got lemonade all over her gloves so they're all fucked up. And then they make the deal about the, how they're going to share the gloves. That's absolutely something that would have happened to me and my sisters. And I'm obviously yeah. the person who has lemonade all over the gloves. So just kind of the way that she describes Joe's embarrassment and refusal of embarrassment as she moves through a world that just is not suited to her and to her awkward body. That was very affecting and moving for me yes. to return to. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that. Not just her embarrassment, but her refusal to be embarrassed. The way they resolve that glove situation is Joe says, okay, I'll wear one good glove and then just carry the screwed up lemonade glove and (laughs) and we'll make do that way. And it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. And I completely hear that experience. I feel that experience. (laughs) And I love the way that you phrased also Meg being like, I cannot go if you don't wear gloves because that is such a femme thing as well. Meg has this very careful attention to the details of femininity, the contours of femininity, doing everything right. 
So we get these really fun gendered contrasts throughout the book, and especially in this chapter, which I would now, you've already recapped a little bit of it. Would you like to give us the formal recap of chapter 28, Domestic Experiences? Yes. And I will give you my emotional journey. Yes, please. This chapter, which was very intense. So one of the things about Little Women that I have a little bit of, I struggle with, is the fact that every five to 10 minutes, we pause and someone gives an educative speech. (laughs) I've always had trouble with this type of thing. I mean, actually, when I say always, I probably shouldn't say that because my childhood memories of reading what I think were basically like the first 150 to 200 pages of yeah, Little Women. That's a very common experience. People read an abridged yeah. version as kids and they're like, wait, they're married and having children. This isn't even an adolescent novel. Like you were saying, at this point, we are in marriage and babies territory. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you, do you know how old she is? How old Meg is how in old, this so section? We learn when Meg is courting John at the end of book one, there's some discussion from the parents about like, you know what? She's too young to get married. She's... Oh. And Joe is about 15 when the book begins and Meg is 16. So we're probably looking at 17 to 19 year old Meg in this chapter. Okay. Okay. This is so illuminating for me in terms of how the novel thinks about age and how people thought about adolescence and about childhood in this time. Because when you say that Joe is 15 when the novel begins, that's quite shocking to me. Yeah. (laughs) Because in a way, all of them are acting Older than their ages because we're older than what I would think of as their ages because, you know, we don't really have the teenager as a category culturally or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But also at the same time, the way that Joe is acting when the novel opens to me, I'm like, you're 12. Yeah, yeah, completely. I hear that. And that might also be just what that's around when I last read it (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. But also something that was coming up for me a lot in reading this is the musical, which I don't know if you're familiar with. You know what? Only very glancingly, it's a real absence in my Little Women knowledge that I'm going to have to correct at some point. It's not going to, especially as a Little Women scholar, it's not going to blow your mind. It's not that fantastic. Joe has a song called Astonishing. I'm familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe is Sutton Foster. And that's the part that's really, and that kept going through my head. In the song, she keeps saying Christopher Columbus. Yes. (laughs) That's like a big part of the song. Okay. So in this chapter... Meg is newly married. She's very enthusiastic about the prospects she has, as Meg is often bound to do with, especially with the performance of femininity, the performance of her gendered role. She's really excited to do like a perfect job. She makes what turns out to be a mistake, which is she tells her husband, hey, if you ever want to bring anybody home for dinner, don't even worry. You don't need to let me know. I'll have it on the table. Everything will be perfect. I don't want to be like those women who are always like, ah, all the time. I'm going to be perfect. (laughs) And then she's like, oh, I'm going to make currant jelly. And she has all of the stuff ordered to make the currant jelly with. And she's like, I've seen the maid make currant jelly. This is another one of those trippy things about the 19th century novel is that thing where people are constantly talking about how poor they are. And then it's like, and then their servants came in. (laughs) Right. There's not only a maid, but there's a hired boy to help pick the currants. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I, and as a very wealthy child who read mostly 19th century novels, I developed a very twisted sense of like how life was. (laughs) So she's stressed and confused about the jelly, but she's proceeding in the best spirit that she can. And then it's a disaster. She ends up crying. She wants her mom. She's like, I wish that she were here to help me. She doesn't know what to do. And then she keeps thinking about how her mom was like, Marmy was like, 
if you're having problems with your husband, never tell anyone. <laughs> I understand that Marmy is trying to give a good advice about not building resentment in a couple. Yeah. That I feel is the kernel of truth in what this chapter has to say about. I mean, honestly, some of the stuff later is very beautiful, but Marmy basically told Meg, just keep it all between you and your husband, which is, this was the point in the chapter where I started to be like, I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> And then John gets home and wouldn't you know, there's a really funny moment where Alcott is like, and you know, the bad thing happens always at the worst possible time, which is very true. And I find her very funny when she's like that. She um, is. This is a very funny treatment of this jelly incident in this chapter, yes. which we'll get into, but yes. And then you learn that the two of them end up laughing about it a lot in the course yeah. of their marriage, which is a sweet is that sweet to me? Yeah. yeah. Like my partner, Liam, and I, who have been together for more than a decade, we have a lot of moments like this. Actually, Liam, one of the things that was going through my head a lot reading this chapter is that Liam is a Meg. What makes Liam a Meg? Please say more. He's, he will, He is really obsessed with homemaking and the domestic. He would have been a great person to interview for this chapter. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. No, he's really into that type of thing. And he has a poetry manuscript, actually, that is called The Complete Home, that mm-hmm. is based on the com- another book called The Complete Home, which is a manual of Victorian housewifery. Wow, okay. And oh. yeah, he's Major Liam Egg. <laughs> or he's actually, I was thinking about this yesterday. He's kind of a Beth, but he's also kind of a Meg. Okay, so... Alcott is really funny when she's describing disaster of any kind, especially when she's like, and they were so upset. She has kind of a sadistic streak, I feel like. It is a world of disappointments, as John discovered when he reached the dovecote. So he gets home. He comes in. She's sobbing. And he is a total fucking asshole to her. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. He's such a dick. The first thing she says is, I'm so tired and exhausted and I'm going to die. And he's and she's crying and wants to be held. And she's like, oh, what's wrong? And then he laughs at her. <laughs> and it's, it is kind of a moment of misunderstanding in a way that the novel is really good at capturing, especially in marriage. Because initially his reaction is really, I think he really is like, what? I don't care about that. Don't worry about it. It's about the jelly, right? And then she's like, no, it matters to me. Like, right. you, why are you laughing at me? This has been my whole day and it's important to me. And then he gets pissy. And then he, the fact that Alcock, there are these sentiments, to find a cross wife was not exactly conducive to repose of mind or, mind or manner. <laughs> to be crying and have your husband come in and have him laugh at you is also not conducive to repose <laughs> of mind or manner. And then he's like, we can just have cold cuts and cheese. We don't need jelly. It's fine. And she's like, ah, total femme murderousness and then they get into a fight she's like how why would you bring a guy here and he's like you told me i could bring guys and she's like well you shouldn't bring guy like you should have known how busy i am and whatever she keeps doing this thing where she starts to cry and says i am so busy which is so sad and then there's a horrible Marmy speech, which is one of the things in this book that really troubles me. I really have to picture Susan Sarandon to make it work for me, where she's like, John's a good guy, but you have to deal, see and bear with his faults, remembering your own, which why? Why doesn't John have to do that? What is the reason? And then she says, he is very accurate and particular about the truth. So never deceive him by look or word. He has a temper but he's really resentful and his resentments burn for a long time. Not like ours where we just get mad at someone for a while and then we're over it. So basically he's unreasonable. 
And they're reasonable. I just was having, I was just fully in my Sylvia Federici by this point in the chapter and was like, I'm angry. I'm anti-John. <laughs> yeah. And that especially when, Mar- well, I, actually, it's kind of an anti-Marmy feeling, really, because Marmy yeah. is like, yeah. be careful, very careful not to wake this anger against yourself for peace and happiness depend on keeping his respect. Or what about he should just respect you? Watch yeah, yourself. No. Be the first to ask pardon if you both err. You always have to be the first person to apologize. So yeah, all of that is quite distressing to me. But then yeah. the scene that immediately follows is actually really moving and lovely. Yeah. Like <laughs> I went on we, the exact same journey, I think, as you did. I was so mad. And then Alcott just smoothed it all over. But yeah, sorry, go on. No, totally. It's just a really lovely description of if you've ever been in a long-term, especially a domestic relationship, or if you've just ever been in a fight and resolved to be the first person to apologize, but struggled to do it. Yeah. There's this description of her crossing the room where she stands up and he doesn't hear her stand up. And she's like looking to him to see if he turns and he doesn't. So she almost can't make it across the room. Like when she like walks a little further across the room and she's still waiting for him to turn and he doesn't. And then she walks over and kisses him on the forehead. Yeah. And then they have a nice sort of laugh about it and are like, you know, this has been silly. We love each other. And it actually reminded me a lot of Tolstoy. Really? Oh, yeah. Same. I know that Alcott read Tolstoy, but go on. I mean, I just, I happen to be reading Anna Karenina to Liam right now. That's like our domestic ritual is he cooks and I read to him, which is really a good deal for me. (laughs) He's a really good cook. And I actually have countered him having a jelly related panic before. Really? Oh my God. Is there a specific story? There's, it's not an interesting story. It happened when we were in college and I, to my credit, I think I probably just was like, I acknowledge the importance of this jelly. Uh, jelly is really frustrating i've been in the presence of more than one jelly maker because it's not until the end that the actual pectin gelling moment happens and then it's like oh i've put all of this work in and this last thing refuses to happen it's really frustrating Yeah. yeah okay so then yeah i think part of what's so moving to me about it is that she kisses him and then he immediately gets done on his knee and is like i'm sorry i laughed about the jelly yeah Yeah, it reminds me of Tolstoy in the sense that one of the things Tolstoy is incredible at writing about is misunderstandings and resentment, especially particularly among married people. Anna Karenina opens with a guy. It's actually a really good description of when you wake up and you are happy because you've forgotten that something awful is happening in your life. Yeah. (laughs) He wakes up and then he remembers that two weeks ago, his wife found out that he was sleeping with their children's governess. So he's really, he has really fucked up. And there are beautiful descriptions in that and in war in the various married people in War and Peace, or there's a father and daughter pair in War and Peace where he's really horrible to her. So all of these are just men being horrible to women, I guess. But there are also men who misunderstand each other in Tolstoy. He's just a really amazing novelist of misunderstanding. Yes. And George Eliot is another person who this yes. really comes to mind for. She's also, really Alcott good at named George Eliot as a favorite novelist, I should say. But go on, sorry. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Th- that makes so much sense in that. They both really have that wonderful 19th century episodic quality in that Little March. <laughs> Middle March and Little Women are both books where you can dip into them like a TV show and be like, oh, I'm going to read this chapter today. I spend some time with my friends who live in this little world and the full spectrum of human tragedy, even though no one ever really does anything more dramatic than buy a house. Although that is a really dramatic oh, thing. very, yes. Yeah. I just mean in other 19th century novels, people are like, I found this cave full of gold and whatever. Okay, so. I should say you mentioned, because you mentioned Tolstoy, this was after 
This was that she, I'm going to quote a letter from Louisa May Alcott, and this was after, well, after Little Women was published, but someone asked her if she'd read a book and she said, no, I haven't read it. I found it too slow and colorless after Anna Karenina. So we know that she really loved Anna Karenina. She said this several years after she published Little Women. So I'm not sure if there was an influence there, but, or if it was just an enduring fave, but. That's really, I mean, that's really interesting to me in particular because of depictions of female virtue. Yeah. I mean, I haven't finished Anna Karenina, so I don't know how I'll feel by the end of it. But so far, it's really interesting to hear him describe this perfectly virtuous and wonderful and fabulous woman. And I know that she's going to end up having an affair with her husband and then coming to a bad end or an affair with with her husband. (laughs) LOL. With Vronsky and then coming to a bad end. But in any case... So I think Anna Karenina, sorry, another, <laughs> I will ask you to keep recapping, but I think Anna Karenina is also a transmasculine text. Sure. And I, I don't know if you're at that part yet, but there is a part, I don't want to spoil anything for you. But... I don't care about that. That's okay. 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 So there is a part where Anna gets gravely ill and they do that 19th century thing where like you have a fever, so they cut all your hair off. And oh, yeah. the first line of defense, <laughs> which also happened to Alcott, coincidentally. But so in this scene, Vronsky comes to her and sees her with the shorn head. And he goes, I don't recognize you. You look so pretty, a boy, and kisses her. And normal. Yeah, super normal. And <laughs> it's in that scene where they have that conversation that goes, our love will be strengthened by there being something terrible in it. So I have this galaxy brain reading on a Karenina as just an encoded queer text about Uh forbidden loves, because knowing what we know about Tolstoy is he was in this notoriously unhappy, borderline abusive marriage, and that he did have documented explicit same-sex attractions slash encounters. And I just think it's so fascinating to me that he locates this thing about how our love will be stronger for there being something terrible in it between Anna and her extramarital lover in the same scene where he says, you look so pretty, a boy, and you have short hair. So that's my guy's I mean, great take. Yeah. Noticeably in Tolstoy, the people who understand each other, he's such a good depictor yeah. of people talking past one another, not understanding each other. And consistently, I feel like the pairs of people who come even close to being able to communicate with each other in a consistent way tend to be pairs of male friends. And I think this is partly just comes from a very an understanding of gendered subjectivity. Yeah, where, it's like, partly just misogyny. <laughs> who people are. But Pierre and Andre or <laughs> Levin and Stepan Arkadich, who are, Stepan Arkadich is kind of an idiot, but I guess so is Levin. And they have a really sweet friendship. Like Alcott, Tolstoy is someone who has really high moral standards for people. Well, yeah. And thinks people should behave. And like her, he is kind of tortured by the fact that he has these incredibly high standards for how people ought to behave, which he himself has never met and cannot meet. And yeah, both of them are quite interesting in that way. Yeah. Well, so I could go on talking about the similarities here forever because they do exist. We know that there was that influence. We know that Alcott was a fan. So after the jelly, there's another incident. So what happened? So after the jelly, he has placed an amount of trust in her where she knows where the money is. She knows how to get to it. She just has to make up accounts with him at the end of the month. And at the beginning of the novel, I forgot that there was that scene at the beginning of the novel where Marmy is just like, so here's what's wrong with each of my daughters. (laughs) What the fuck, Marmy? And the thing that's sort of Meg's problem is she's a vain materialist. Yeah. 
And she loves beautiful things. And it partly described as she remembers when the fortunes of the family were better. So she remembers what it's like to have those nice things. And the novel spends so much time punishing her. And this was another place where I got really mad and was like, no, she wants it. She even articulates it. Here's my thing is that she's actually doing things that are in Brooke's interest socially. Oh, okay. Yeah. She wants to have a good dress. She's like, the silk dress I have for going out is black. And that's common. And there's stuff that I have is lighter. If the material is light, that's for a maiden who's just debuted and isn't married. And it's kind of funny because partly I think in Elcott's butchness, <laughs> not to put yeah. that on her, but no, like, but truly, is, yeah, she doesn't get it. She's like, I don't, I'm just not going to wear gloves to the thing. And Meg is like, oh my God, if you don't wear gloves to the thing, it's actually going to have material impact on yeah. my social standing. And yeah. I cannot have you doing that. So I feel like she's actually quite right. This is something they should be building into the household expenses so that Meg can be a respectable member of her community. Interesting. Okay. Um, I was not thinking that at all. I was on team Meg pretty much throughout the jelly incident. And it was during the dress incident that I was like, okay, I'm team drawn, Brooke. You shouldn't be spending $50 on silks. That's kind of a lot of money to spend on clothes in 2023. (laughs) And that's without even taking, I think $50. That would be a major clothing expense for me. And for that's not formal, even... For a formal dress? Okay, for... a formal dress. Well, no, I... Because <laughs> what she's doing is... This also might just be me being rich, but what she's doing is she's saying, okay, for the formal events in this town, which probably don't happen that often, I'm going to need something that is appropriate for me as a newly married young woman, and I don't have that. The only thing I have that is appropriate is the type of thing that a poor man's wife would wear, which if the two of them are going to be socially aspirational, and she's going to continue to have the type of success that young women are described as having, social success that young women are described as having in 19th century novels, which is probably one of the main ways that she can contribute to their social advancement. It's an investment. Okay. I have to say, I hear everything you're saying. And I I need to tell you, I just plugged the numbers into the inflation calculator. How much money is it? Do you want to do you want to yes, I want to write this? Price is right. No, How I'm much not do you gonna think be, it is. I'm gonna be so wrong. Is it more than five hundred dollars? Yes. How much more? Uh, price is right. Is it more than two thousand dollars? It is one thousand fifty-nine dollars and thirty cents. Well <laughs> I mean, well, how long is it gonna last though? I- that's like how much a dress costs now. Well, a dress from where? Bergdorf. <laughs> no, it's actually insane how much no, clothing I... costs. This is its own. No, very... I, I know. I'm not saying make should go to Shein. <laughs> but, no, I see no. what you're saying. When I, I started working and I was still presenting as a woman, I went to the mall and I went to a store called Rice and I was like, I'm going to get a nice dress. And I think my first nice dress was $250. And I remember being floored by that. And that was like a nice non-mass marketed dress. And Meg and John, I understand, yes, that's what a dress costs at Bergdorf's, but they're not. The, the social situation of the marches of the Brooks now, they're not. Maybe Sally is Bergdorf's, but can Sally understand that Meg is not? I don't know. There's just really, I'm glad I plugged it into the inflation calculator because that really put it into perspective. We are talking about a $1,000 investment that she just springs on him, 
right? And they are not, they are oh, okay. not rolling I mean, that's, it. Yeah? That, that is, that's the mis- That's I completely agree with that. Yeah. That's the mistake. This should have been a whole conversation. Like yes, she should yeah. have sat him down and been like, hey, I want to pursue our social career. And so I need one Bergdorf style dress, not sure. two, just one. I understand that this is a big ask. This is ultimately in our interest as a couple. This is how she should have approached it. Yeah. Instead, she totally messes up. And then I think he's actually reasonably nice about it. Yeah. He's quite self-sacrificing about it. And there's the whole thing about the coat. Because then he basically is like, I'm not going to get the clothes that I wanted for myself. And he really needs the coat. Yeah, like, it's cold. It's New England. <laughs> it's not the abstract need where it's like, I need yeah. to advance my social standing. So I need this dress from Bergdorf. It's like, yeah, I need the fucking coat. And she feels really guilty. She feels really bad. Oh, and then she asks Sally for money for the silk. And Sally is a really fascinating figure in this book. Yeah, Sally buys the silk. Sa- she sells it yeah. to Sally. Yeah. Oh, she sells it to Sally. Yeah, she's okay. like, hey, Sally, do you want these yards of silk that I right. like <laughs> stupidly bought? So she's essentially, you know, to use our modern example, she's like, Sally, she's going on the real real. She's reselling her Bergdorf's Right. Right. And Sally knows what's happening. Yeah. And then there's this interesting sentence where it says, Sally willingly did so and had the delicacy not to make her a present of it immediately afterward. So the vulgar and humiliating thing for Sally to have done would have been to just be like, here, I'm just giving this back to you. Because her dignity as a poor girl is so important. And Sally is, I feel like, one of the novel's figures that Alcott has a gendered area that these girls can move in that's appropriate for them. Yeah. Sally is too much of a woman. (laughs) Yeah. And Meg is too much of a woman. And like, it's a little bit of a problem. And Alcott has an issue with it. Yeah, it's certainly partially a class thing. Some of it is misogyny and some of it is a contempt for upper class fripperies. And just thinking that getting into that world at all, whether you're a man or a woman is shallow. Yeah, no, absolutely. It just, it manifests in Sally and in Meg (laughs) in terms of these feminine comforts. Yeah. And I don't remember actually whether there's a moment in this novel, you probably know, I'm sure. Is there a moment for any of the male characters where they're like, oh, I want this luxury. I've bought this, but I can't have it. Yeah. So Lori comes home from college and he has a new look. He's had the makeover. He's got some <laughs> new clothes. And Joe is like, you look so stupid. Your oh, clothes I remember are ridiculous. That. Your new haircut is ugly. So he really lets him have it. So it's, it's not, and, and I mean, I, to the extent that I view Lori as a feminized character as well, there's some yeah. language about Lori being a dandy. So. And he's, it feels also kind of Jamesy in the whole aspect of his femininity because it's all, it yeah. all has to do, he's kind of European. Yes, he's Italian. He's half Italian, famously. He, and his mom was a bad Italian singer his, lady. Yeah, his mom, exactly. So Lori's not allowed to do music or desire things. Right. <laughs> so there is some, we get some of that directed. You know, I say it's class, but it, it's also these feminine qualities. Like I know that she doesn't want him to drink or gamble as well. I, and we can argue about whether those things are class-based as well, but there's... Well, I mean, I think it can be both. It's one of those interesting things where it, to be, in fact, high class involves not being vain and not succumbing to... Like, in fact, the March sisters are of a higher class than Sally in, like, a spiritual sense or whatever. Sure, exactly. Because they, they behave in a way that is unimpeachable. But I do think there's a really strong thread running through 19th century writing where luxury and sensual pleasure are feminized qualities. They're also European 
qualities. They're continental. And I think that it's actually part of kind of how Alcott threads this very slim needle about how she as a sort of gender nonconforming person and as a woman with her own way of going about the world is going to make these categories make sense to her is that she's kind of like, well, you know what? Femininity is actually this vulgar thing. And the fact that I'm not able to perform that correctly, that actually speaks to my solidness. Yeah. <laughs> As an American child of Puritanism, I am behaving in this way, not because I have an excess of masculinity, but because I am so virtuous and Susan Sarandon has given me these interminable speeches. <laughs> So then, okay, there's this really interesting Forsterian turn at the end of the chapter. Yes. Forster, there's this famous thing in Howard's End. Have you read Howard's End? I haven't. No. That's- you should call me when you do. It's so okay. I'll make a podcast about Howard's End and you can yeah. go on. It's oh, one fabulous. of my favorite yeah. novels ever. Closest and- thing I will tell you I've come to reading Howard's End is following the controversy around the inheritance, <laughs> which I don't know if you have. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... In Howard's End, one of the main characters up until about halfway through the novel is this character named Mrs. Wilcox. And Mrs. Wilcox owns and has inherited the estate that the novel revolves around. And then the second half of the novel opens with the sentence, the funeral was over. And Mrs. Wilcox is dead. I'm sorry to spoil Howard's End for you. (laughs) And Mrs. Wilcox is dead. And a lot of these really significant events that in most novels, you know, formally would take place, they would be the content of the novel. And Forster, as far back as when he first writes A Room with a View, which is his second novel, he writes a letter to a friend and he's like, "Ugh, I'm so frustrated. I just realized that basically all my books are going to have to end with weddings because that's how novels work. And I just, I don't, weddings, funerals, he basically, he doesn't say that's for straight people, but he's kind of like, that's not really what my life is all about. Oh, it's queer time. It actually struck me as a really interestingly Forsterian turn. He does that a lot in his novels. He elides these big moments and instead chooses to focus on these background things. It struck me as this kind of interesting turn that she has fucking kids. (laughs) But the whole chapter is about, I fucked up this jelly or ordered this dress in a way that I feel like actually offers space to what it's like to be a housewife. Not that having a baby isn't a big somatic experience in that life world. Totally is, but it's comprised of little moments like that. I'm looking something up. Hold on. Just to explain. So first I want to read the paragraph basically in which the children materialize, the babies. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking at that too. Okay. You kind of get put in Lori's place because it's so surprising. It's one paragraph. In the same paragraph, the first half of this paragraph is that she sells the silk to Sally's. The second half part of the paragraph is that she uses the money to buy John a new coat and he sees the coat and he's happy. And she, when she gives him the coat, she's like, how do you like your wife's new silk dress? And he's like, oh, that's silly. But she conveys that she sold the silk and bought the coat. This is what yeah. the money is. And the last- There's a whole sentence, scene in the middle yeah. of the paragraph. And then the last sentence of this paragraph, which again, in which all the silk has been sold, the coat has been bought, they've reconciled. The last sentence of that paragraph is, so the year rolled round and at midsummer there came to Meg a new experience, the deepest and tenderest of a woman's life. And then Lori walks in and is like, babies! <laughs> like, it's the way that she quick. The yeah. way she manipulates scene is actually incredible. That paragraph is so cinematic. It opens with very practical stuff. And then you get this beautiful little romantic, sweet moment of reconciliation between Meg and John, mm-hmm. where you have the image of her in the great coat, which is, it is interesting that I feel like that supports my reading of <laughs> luxury as feminine when she like shows up in this masculinized garb. Oh, yeah, yeah. And is like, 
I've been good. She put it on. I fr- yeah, that's right. When John, yeah, she, she put it on and was like, how do you like me in this? That's hot. Wow. Okay. Is, I agree with, I agree. That's sexy. <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful romantic <gasps> moment. You know what? Um, Oh my God. So hold on. So she shows up, she's wearing the coat. She's like, how do you like the new silk dress? And then the babies. Oh my God. You're right. So it's like, then they fucked. <laughs> and, and then, then they have kids. <laughs> oh, After whoa. she wore his oh, coat wow. and was like, how do you this like me in your is, coat? This book is really <laughs> sneaky. Oh my God. Also just like virtuosic in terms of prose to be able to yeah. move a scene and out of a scene in a paragraph like that. Because it, and it just turns on this really strong hinge of this strong image of Meg in the great coat. Yeah. Something she would never wear. And yeah, literally the next sentence is just Lori came sneaking into the kitchen. And I was so, I was genuinely so puzzled. And I had to yeah, ask yeah. you and be like, so then Lori shows up and then there's just babies. <laughs> and Joe shows up and there's a great sentence of describing Joe's demeanor where it's like, Joe's face was very sober, but her eyes twinkled. And there was an odd sound in her voice of repressed emotion of some sort. And then she's like, close your eyes. And then she hands him a baby, which don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) They're little, they're breakable. I'm sorry. I want to go back for one second to the silk gown. Yeah, totally. So Meg ordered home the great coat. And when John arrived, she put it on and asked him how he liked her new silk gown. One can imagine what answer he made, <laughs> how he received his present, and what a blissful state of things ensued. Wow. And then the babies are two sentences later. She is saying, what a blissful state of things ensued. She's saying, and then they fucked. And then <laughs> and they produced fucked. children. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's such a good example of something that is a really potent image of erotic desire that if you read this and were someone who was a little kid who had not entered into erotic life in that way yet, or even just me just now being like naive and not thinking about it closely, it's a great example of how to write children's literature. No, completely. And also- Or like do sexuality in children's literature. In in 19th century children's literature, we had to be coy about everything. We were talking about Anna Karenina. It's not at all- clear immediately that she's pregnant or having a child until the child appears, right? Right. Yeah. And I also, I wanted to read this one journal entry and I would love to move on to Lori and the babies. I know I totally interrupted you, but this was a diary entry by Mary Richardson Walker, who is a settler woman of the early 19th century in 1838. And she wrote this entry about her day, Wednesday 16th, rose about five o'clock, had an early breakfast, got my housework done up about nine. Baked six more loaves of bread, made a kettle of mush, and now have a suet pudding and some beef boiling. My Jesus girl has Christ. ironed. My girl has ironed, and I have made out to put my clothes away and set my house in order. May the mercy of the merciful be with me through the expected scene. Nine o'clock p.m. was delivered of a son. <laughs> Whoa! Four. Yeah, because it's funny. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like, well, today I did the chores. I made mush. You know, I set my house in order, and then I had a kid, <laughs> and then I had a baby. Yeah. It's a good thing you have a maid. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Wow. It's so interesting. I love reading 19th century work, I think, partly because there's this one aspect where it's like that scene between these little romantic sweet moments between Meg and John. I'm like, wow, I relate to this completely. People have not changed at all since this book was written. And then there are other moments when you're engaging with text from that period where you're like, these people are aliens who have yep. like <laughs> funny hats that they have to wear to different. Yeah. I mean, I actually, as a leatherman, have funny hats I have to wear to different, <laughs> but <laughs> in a really different way. <laughs> yeah. Also, Debbie John. So, okay. So, Lori gets the kids. Joe hands Lori the children. 
And this is yeah. an interesting scene. We can talk about what it means to have the presentation of the babies be handled by Joe and Lori, the presumed next couple yeah, to be married and how Joe handles the interaction, how Lori handles the interaction. We're told that Amy put a blue ribbon on the boy and a pink on the girl. French fashion, so you can always tell. So there's the patriarchy coming right uh-huh. in. And then they're talking about how they've named the children. The boy is to be named John Lawrence and the girl Margaret after mother and grandmother. We shall call her Daisy so as not to have two Megs. That's because the French word for Daisy is Marguerite. So we went over that in an earlier chapter when Meg was first nicknamed Daisy. And so now they're saying that, okay, John Lawrence named after John Brooke. I suppose he'll be Jack unless we find a better name, said Amy with aunt like interest. And then Lori says, name him Demi John and call him Denny for short. And everyone approves of that name. And then the babies are named. They're called Daisy and Demi. Wait, so they named the baby Demi John? So the baby's actually Or is it a name? Yeah, because John Brooke is John. And they can't, and the baby can't also be named John. So the baby needs so to be So why not name. simply name the baby not John? I don't know. Well, it's, I don't know. People, <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just being silly. I get it. Yeah. I just think it's, I just think it's funny and Baroque. I mean, yeah. my father, in fact, he has one of those Southern names where like his first name is a traditional oh. name from the family. <laughs> and then the rest, he goes by his middle name. Right. I just think it's silly and fun, especially because is Demi John. I should have looked this up. I'm going to Google this now. Is Demi John like a normal well, so Demi, it's kind of French for half. So they're like, name him half John. He's John Jr. And that's a cute thing. I don't know. I don't know how conventional that was. Oh, actually, apparently. So it's a joke. A Demi John originally referred to any glass vessel with a large body and small neck enclosed Aww. in wicker Okay, the cute. word presumably comes from the French Dom Jean, literally Lady Jane, as a popular appellation. And I guess they... Oh, so just any type of glass bottle or vessel that would be like enclosed in wicker so as not to break it. So she's just naming the baby after a domestic object. First of all, I love you just automatically using she, her for Lori. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I wasn't. Yeah. I thought it was Joe who suggested it, but yeah. Yeah. Lori Lori says name him Demi John and and call him Demi for short. So I didn't know that it came from Lady Jane because Demoiselle, right? Yeah, I guess. I was thinking right. Demi is in half. And of course, now Demi, that's a very feminized name. And so, but it's interesting. Yeah, that even yeah, then yeah. It was sort of yeah. slang for Demoiselle. And this is the second time that Lori has chosen a feminized name for someone. Lori named himself Lori. Right. And is now saying we have to name the baby Demi John, short for Demoiselle Jane. Yeah. <laughs> the French yeah, yeah. slang. It's just, it's very interesting to me. That's Lori's approach. And so I would love to spend some time here thinking about how Joe and Lori behave with one another in gendered ways in the presentation of these babies. Because that's Mm -hmm. very interesting to me. Of no consequence, I love that Lori is saying, I'm afraid to hold the babies. He's like, no, thank you. I'd rather not. I'll drop the baby or smash it. And Joe says, then you shan't see your nevy. (laughs) We've lost nevy. I assume that's slang for nephew. Oh, sure. Sure, And I love it. I don't know where that went, but it's very cute. You shan't see your nevy. And so, yes, I also question Joe's decision to ask Lori to close his eyes and hold the baby. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think it's partly in the 19th century, you're just not precious about children or babies. <laughs> if it gets dropped, it'll probably just die of diphtheria. It's fine. <laughs> he And then he's really shocked because then it's two babies. So they've actually handed him two babies. Yes. And twins by Jupiter. Then he's really surprised. And then they all laugh at him. 
And he looks at them with an appealing look that was comically piteous. So he actually is having quite a boy moment where he's like, yeah. Oh my God. Oh no. He looks to the women. Right. And, and then John takes that. the baby. Yeah. We've been told Joe, Amy, Mrs. March, Hannah, and John are in the room. They're laughing. Conspicuously absent. Meg isn't there. Presumably she's yeah. recovering from the birth. Of, from something. having twins. From having twins in 1868. <laughs> yeah, or maybe she's just making mush. <laughs> yeah, making mush. <laughs> but then John is the person who takes the babies. I mean, I guess he's yeah. the parent, but as opposed to one of the ladies jumping in, or is Mar- Marmy? Oh, Marmy is there. Yeah. The only, so Meg isn't there. Beth is also not there. And this is another interesting. Is Beth already really sick or is she dead? Her illness hasn't intensified yet. She's not dead yet. We found reading this kind of the early portion of part two that Beth is just kind of absent from a lot of big scenes because the real life, we have theorized that the real life Elizabeth Alcott was, for instance, not present for the real life Meg's wedding. She wasn't there for the birth of these children. So what was she doing? She was dead. (laughs) Oh, she was dead. She died very young. So, oh, so yeah. So basically, Alcott has elongated her life. Yeah, exactly. It's, That's really sad. It's sort of yeah. It's in the first volume. Beth has gets ill as a young person and then makes this miraculous recovery. Right. And then in the second volume, she does pass away. But then there's all this stuff that the real life Elizabeth Alcott just wasn't alive for, and right. she's sort of not present. For instance, here at the birth of the first grandchildren, she's not here. She's in maybe one line of the wedding. She's She's, kind of a spectral presence. Yeah, she's not. She's literally not in the room here. And she's barely in the wedding scene. And maybe that just has something to do with the fact that she just wasn't the real life equivalent of the character, wasn't alive for those scenes. It sadly enough does kind of end up mimicking often what ends up happening or how it ends up feeling when somebody is chronically ill and just is not at the wedding scene. Yeah, which is also kind of a Forsterian thing. I always, whenever anything like that is not depicted or when particular people are absent from the scene, that always feels really significant to me as someone who's really interested in, you know, broadly speaking, feminist approaches to the novel or queer approaches mm-hmm. to the novel. Have you ever read that Virginia Woolf essay on being sick? It's called no. On Being Ill. I don't know. I don't think so. Talking about this with you makes me want to reread On Being Ill and okay. try to think about that and Beth. I am not particularly myself a scholar of chronic illness, but I'm around a lot of that. My best friend is a medical anthropologist who studies chronic fatigue syndrome. So it's interesting to think about. So Lori ends up kissing the babies. Joe's like, you should kiss the babies. And Lori's like, what if they don't like it? (laughs) It's very cute. And Joe's like, of course they'll like it. Oh yeah. Do it this minute, sir, commanded Joe, fearing he might propose a proxy. Yeah, she does not want him to kiss her. Right. One of the other things that in, in, in starting this novel again really charmed me is the moment early in Joe and Lori's friendship when she goes over to see him and he's sick and mm-hmm. makes everything nice. She cleans his room and she does all this stuff. And then she comes home and she's like, and he said to say to you, Mom, I really liked the medicine you sent. Thank you. Yeah. I guess he the blancmange. <laughs> and Meg and her mom are like, Meg says, don't you know a compliment when you hear one? <laughs> and they're both like, he's flirting with you, basically. But they don't say it. And yeah, she's yeah. just like, Ugh, you guys are the worst. No, he was just saying a normal thing. <laughs> and then Marmy says to Meg, Mar- Meg is like, you're being an idiot. And Meg- Marmy turns to Meg and is like, let children be children while they're children. Yeah. 
I thought that was so sweet and also helps to sort of satisfy, I guess, in a way, hearing let children be children, mother children. The part of me that is still pissed off about Lori and Joe not ending up together is feels like a little bit better about that or something. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's the transition. I think my understanding of how Alcott thought about Joe and Lori, which is she's like, I'm never, they're not getting together romantically. That's simply not happening. At the end of the first book, she envisions this kind of genuinely radical platonic friendship for them. When uh-huh. Meg and John Brooke have gotten engaged, Joe and Lori sort of also exchange vows to be best friends forever and stand by one another all their days and go on a trip together. So it's, <laughs> No, he's literally, yeah, I'm going to go to college and then we should go to Europe together. So it's simultaneously as Meg and John are having this very conventional engagement, Joe and Lori are saying, I will stand by you forever and I will be your best friend. And then we should go on a trip that's not a honeymoon, but you know, so they're making their own parallel arrangement. And totally. it's only in basically in the gap between the first book being published and it being a smash and the sequel being demanded, Alcott got a ton of letters being like, I can't wait for the sequel. I'm so excited to see letters from children, from girls saying, I can't Um, wait to see Joe and Lori get married. And she was like, uh that's not (gasps) fucking happening. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I love it. I love it. She's on her Sarah Ahmed feminist killjoy shit. She's like, no. (laughs) Literally, she has all these letters and journals where she's like, oh, I can't wait to see how angry people are when Joe and Lori don't get married. And I'm going to make the worst (laughs) husband for Joe. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God. Literally to piss people off. Actually, I think the disciplinary aspect of this novel is really Mm -hmm. fascinating and the way that it's about how you should behave and how you should set yourself these impossible standards and strive to achieve them. And the fact that it has that, but it's also such a comfortable, warm, pleasurable space to enter, even when it's infuriating, is such a testament to what a fucking classic it is and how enduring the insights that it has about gender and family are. Well, and it's and so what's interesting here is when we spent the entire chapter in Meg's head, right? Yeah. And then the babies are born and Meg is just not in the room. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) And yeah, she gives this scene to Joe and Lori and emphasizes that Lori has the air of a big benevolent Newfoundland looking at a pair of infantile kittens. He's yeah. he's like a big clumsy presence in the room. He's scared to kiss them because they might not like it. Joe is like, don't kiss me. So it's immediately kind of sort of quickly thrust from this image of married life to, okay, what would family life look like for Joe and Lori? And the answer is, well, Lori's sort of ill at ease and Joe uh-huh. doesn't want to be kissed. <laughs> and What's interesting in this scene, she seems to be laying the groundwork for some Joe and Lori are not going to get together. See, they're not good at this. They're not. (laughs) Lori is unprepared at this moment. But what's interesting is that Joe is already capable and able and handling the babies and acting like one accustomed to baby tending. There's an odd sound in her voice of repressed emotion. So what do you read there about Joe's attitude toward parenthood slash motherhood slash fatherhood? Well, so I have never read either Little Men or Joe's Boys, but is it not the case later that does Joe end up teaching? Yeah. So she opens at the end of Little Women, she opens a boys school on the grounds of her aunt's cottage. And then, so that's at the end of Little Women. And I think what people don't know is that in the subsequent books, Lori opens a college right next door and then everyone lives on this big campus together. Wow. Yeah, that is okay. That's so I'm a 19th century progressive intellectual that I'm going to scream. We'll all just go to liberal arts school forever. That sounds great. (laughs) 
But yeah, I thought it was really interesting that we see Joe in this moment with these babies that aren't hers and she's interacting with the babies. She has the repressed emotion in her voice. She clearly, it's a powerful experience for her to be having this experience. And it's juxtaposed with Amy, who there's this one Amy (laughs) moment where Amy just, she has ant-like interest. Yeah. (laughs) Which she's just kind of fulfilling her social role. She's- yeah. And He's tying like it. pink and blue ribbons onto the baby. He's behaving in an ant-like way. Yeah. Whereas Joe is like, there's this clearly strong connection, even though with Lori, the interaction is sort of troubled or whatever. It's not romantic as it might be for another pair. Something that I am really interested in, in terms of social reproduction and how it works and how the heterosexual family uses figures that are outside of it, gender nonconforming people, queer people broadly, is that we historically, have, I mean, I'm a queer childcare worker. You also work with young people. It's the profession of a lot of queers and a lot of women who have in some way failed gender. So the fact that Joe has this moment with somebody else's baby, even though, you know, it, it's her relative, but she has this moment with someone else's baby feels really interesting to me in terms of what her fate uh-huh. is all about. She gets married to Mr. Is his name Mr. Bear? Professor Bear. Yes. That's And his they name. do have children. Yeah. And they did. That was the thing I was curious about yeah. is if they have their own kids. Yeah. Obviously, real world Alcott never, well, real world Alcott never married. What I think- People don't know is that she did adopt children during her life. Oh. So Anna Alcott, her older sister, the IRL Meg, her husband passed away. And when that happened, Alcott wrote in her journal, I must be a father to these children. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. In other letters, she says, I'm Papa to the boys. <laughs> so there was an understanding. It was father. It was Papa. In another letter to then May Alcott, the real life Amy passed away a few weeks after giving birth. So she was in Switzerland. She'd married a Swiss man and she had her baby and passed away. And in her will, she said, I want the baby to be sent to America to be raised by Louisa. She's like, I don't want a husband to raise this baby Oh my! (laughs) for whatever reason. So basically, (laughs) Louisa assumed care of this child. And it's interesting. She does refer to herself sometimes as an aunt, but more often when she writes letters to this to Lulu, was, as the child was known, she signs R we, as in the child's mispronunciation of R to Louisa. Oh. Sometimes she says weedy. So there's still some hesitation about picking up. She doesn't call herself a mother. She does call herself a father. I can get you the exact quote, but it's something about keeping the house clean for father. And it's sort of ambiguous whether she's talking about herself and referring to herself as father or papa, as she does with Anna's children, one of whom she did actually adopt to pass on her copyright or... If she's referring to like Ernest, the Swiss man, although that reading wouldn't make a ton of sense either because Lulu didn't go back to live with him until after Alcott died and Alcott was well at that point. So anyway, I wanted to read this. She really is one of those people where you're like, oh, this mad novelist has proposed that Louisa May Alcott (laughs) might be transmasculine. And then you go to read stuff she wrote and she's just like, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. And you're like, oh, I must be a father to these children. Yeah, it's yeah. (laughs) I try not to go dwell on the haters, but I, I did happen to find one person like pretty passionately being like, what are we to make of the fact that a woman in the 19th century was calling herself father and papa? That doesn't mean she was trans. I'm like, well, it doesn't not. (laughs) Like, it certainly, it seems like legitimate interpretation of the data. Anyway, I wanted to read while we're talking about Joe's attitude toward baby tending and 
Alcott's own love of children. Joe's pretty documented. She goes to New York to be a governess soon. She's about to do that. You know, she gets a lot of delight about looking after these kids. So this is Alcott in 1874. So a few years after Little Women is writing a letter to the editor of the Boston Daily Journal. She opens it saying, my attention having been called to the fact that a letter of mine sent to the annual women's suffrage meeting has been entirely misunderstood by the opponents of the cause. I wish to set the matter right. I hate when that happens. (laughs) Uh, I know. It's basically she's writing to defend herself. And essentially, so someone, an opponent of the cause said that home duties kept her from a women's suffrage festival. She says, no, I was ill. This was just a women's suffrage fair. Like I would be at like actual meetings. I would be there to vote, but this was just a party and I wasn't needed there. And then she responds to a second, I guess, objection of this opponent of the suffrage cause. And she says, the assertion that suffragists do not care for children and prefer notoriety to the joys of maternity, which it seems to be Alcott didn't get married and have kids. So she must prefer notoriety, right? So she's responding specifically to that slur here. The assertion that suffragists do not care for children and prefer notoriety to the joys of maternity is so fully contradicted by the lives of the women who are trying to make the world a safer and better place for those sons and daughters that no defense is needed. Having spent my own life from 15 to 50, loving and laboring for children as teacher, nurse, storyteller, and guardian, I know whereof I speak and value their respect and confidence so highly that for their sake, if for no other reason, I desire them to know that their old friend never deserts her flag. So that's a pretty passionate kind of defense of her understanding of her own relationships to children, her own decision not to be a mother, but the joy that she takes out of these other roles, teacher, nurse, storyteller, guardian. And I, I love this letter just because she's so pissed off <laughs> yeah. and she's just letting them have it. And I think it's also a nice articulation of the role that she found for herself, you know, as an older, unmarried person, quite uncomfortable with womanhood, certainly not interested in heterosexual marriage or procreation. <laughs> like yeah. she, she's like, no, this is my my role. This is it, genuinely what I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's this long tradition or thread of people, yeah, responding to these accusations about, okay, you have no respect for the heterosexual family, or you've abandoned the heterosexual family, or you're antagonistic yeah. to the heterosexual family in whatever way by just showing up in the form that you show up in. And people responding to that accusation by saying, actually, I am the person who babysits your kid. Yeah. That is my relationship to this institution. It's not that I don't have a relationship to it or that I'm outside or that I'm making this claim to be outside of it. I just have a different relationship relation to it th- than you do. That letter actually really reminds me of this series of weirdly, this isn't my area of expertise, but I have read a bunch of le- letters by suffragettes and specifically Stanton and Anthony because I was the assistant on a potential musical about them. And that's the reason. <laughs> but was it somebody- Suffs? Was it that new one, Suffs? Oh, I probably shouldn't say, honestly. Oh, okay. We maybe cut this record. out. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to okay. step on anyone's toes, but there's all these letters between Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony where Anthony is castigating Stanton for having too much sex and having too many children. Cause Elizabeth Katie Stanton was loved kids, was yeah. really involved in raising her children, was notorious in her neighborhood because she believed that children should get fresh air and plenty of exercise and bathe every day, which everybody thought was insane. <laughs> And yeah, she and her husband were really into each other and they had a very romantic marriage and they fucked a lot. He was kind of useless, but she was really into him and his whole professional life was based on her. And anyway, sorry, not to just go on and on about it. 
But Anthony was always writing to her and being like, you you just fucked again. So now you're going to be laid up for fucking, you know, 10 months. This fucking sucks. We can't go on tour. Because the way that it worked was that one of them would write the speeches and the other one would give them. I forget which one, but they're a duo. They need the other one to be there. And Stanton is like, sorry, I have my whole life. Whatever. Sorry that I'm having a great time. And Anthony is like, I'm angry. (laughs) And she writes to some of the other suffragists and is like, I cannot believe that she would sacrifice months and months of work for the movement for but a moment's pleasure between her and her husband. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if. That's a totally word perfect quote, but I remember it's definitely but a moment's pleasure for her and her husband, as if this whole enterprise were yeah. about didn't involve their children. <laughs> no, <laughs> she was very horny. So she had 10 kids. I love that for her, first of all. <laughs> What's funny is that as much as I just read you this letter where she's very much like, how dare you say that I don't care for children? There are so many other letters, journal entries where Alcott is trying to get out the vote among the women in her town. Because they did in Concord, Alcott was sort of instrumental in allowing taxpaying local women, white women, to vote in school board elections. So Alcott did vote for the school board and figured that out. But as they're getting that effort going, she is so pissy about women who don't show up, about women who are like too busy with household chores. Oh, uh huh. Right. So there is some of that. She's kind of playing both sides of that divide here. Like she's saying, like, how yeah. dare you? Of course, I cha- care for children. Well, she's doing it correctly. Everything I do is for children. And then in other letters, this was to the editor of the Boston Daily Journal. And then in private, she's like, oh my God, these stupid bitches can't stop sewing and cooking. (laughs) She's really I mean, I- Woman of contradictions. Yeah. I feel like part of why I find myself, a lot of my exposure to this is through Liam and his work on writing from this, roughly this period- is that it's honestly such a traumatic re-encounter, not in a bad way, yeah. but it really is a really frank coming to terms with a lot of the things that really shaped my mother and my grandmother and just how gender works in families and how yeah. what people feel that they have to do, which the way that Little Women is written, it's all kind of about sentiment and affect and gesture. And how those combine in order to make a virtuous or non-virtuous person, and specifically girl. Yeah. Young woman, adult yeah. woman now, as Meg's giving birth. So wait, okay, do you feel like at this point, the novel relates to Meg as an adult? I think it's hard to imagine she's not a child. She's not an adolescent anymore. I think the book maybe begins with her in early adolescence, but uh-huh. whatever she is right now, she's not a child. She is someone who is creating children, responsible for the care of children, responsible for managing a household. And she is a young adult, but I don't think that makes her not an adult. I think she has crossed a divide that Joe and Lori are now kind of on the precipice of looking over mm-hmm. and getting ready to jump <laughs> and I just deciding whether they're going to jump yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's really striking that she is in this grown up Meg chapter that does indeed end with her assuming the mantle of parenthood, which, yeah, that's adultifying experience. The way that we see her behaving, it still feels like the scrapes from earlier in the book. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Well, the jelly, certainly. She's completely overwhelmed. She's overstimulated and upset. And she cries like a little kid and she's like, I want my mom. When they reconcile, she kisses John on the forehead and then he takes her on his knee. He literally pulls her into his lap, which is how you'd comfort a a child, maybe. Yeah, totally. So I don't know. I feel like these books are sort of a signal of this category that is starting to open of 
needing to at least understand the process by which children become adults that I feel like is very bound up with romanticism and its weird relationship to transcendentalism. Oh yeah. Transcendentalism is everywhere here. Yeah. I have a really hard time with the transcendentalists because I'm, (laughs) I like pleasure, (laughs) but I honestly don't know that much about the transcendentalists. So I shouldn't. I think pleasure was certainly part of it. What's fascinating for me reading Alcott's letters and journals is that towards the end of her life, she's like, I went to a really cool lecture about Hinduism. Did you know this? And did you know that? And this is how this Hindu lecturer talked about Christianity. It really made me think. And then later on, she's like, Buddhism is really appealing to me. She was doing that completely, (laughs) that classic thing. Just having a real white lady spiritual seeker moment. Yeah, completely. And there was a really, and that all culminates in after Emerson's passing, she writes a letter to a friend kind of articulating her own beliefs. And she's I think Emerson was right. God is in nature. When I want to feel close to God, that's where I go. And I think the Buddhists have a lot to say. So, so it was, she was sort of like, it's, it's sweet to read now. It's also, it's so modern to why women have not stopped doing that. <laughs> but it, you know, it's her vision of spirituality certainly, I think, evolved past simple Christianity and really came to incorporate these other traditions. Do you see any of that spirituality in this chapter? I guess in like not much. There's something kind of spiritually like woo-y feeling to me when Meg has the baby. Okay. That paragraph, I'm really glad that you pulled it out to close read it. I just I don't know. It says that it's the deepest and tenderest experience of a woman's life, which definitely feels like it fits into this (laughs) weird religion of something that Alcada has discovered and made for herself. It's really beautiful. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, in The Sims, when you have a baby and the Sim becomes a pillar of light and then the light <laughs> fades and they're holding the baby. It's very, it's very that. Like, <laughs> but then again, Meg is not in the room when we're meeting these babies. I think implies she's wrecked. She's upstairs sleeping off childbirth or like having twins. Yeah. She had twins <laughs> in 1868. So one of the things that's striking is that you don't get what. I feel like I, as a reader, am very trained to expect, which is this scene where Meg is lying on her back and she's holding the baby on her chest. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Meg is not, she's asleep upstairs. Yeah, just, those are the things about, (laughs) maybe this is a really silly remark, but (laughs) those are often the things about reading 19th century writing that are the most striking to me, where it's just where everyone's standing is different. Yeah. In such a way that I'm sure if I went back to this time somehow in a time machine, I would just be even worse at social cues than I am now. And I know a reasonable amount about this time period, but it would take a long time to catch up. It's there's And like in Little Women, you get all of this, there's all of this contemporary slang and other kind of ways that people behave that you wouldn't really put in your fancy book for adults. No, completely. I think It's not literary fiction. Alcott did write adult literary fiction. This was Uh very much not that. Even as it is about adult life and childbirth, the audience is clearly children. It's maybe children who are a bit older now than they were when they read that first volume of Little Women, but it's still very much the case. And she would continue to write sequels very much in the four children zone. So when she wrote Joe's Boys, she was like, I don't know if you should call this a children's book because all the boys are older than 20. <laughs> so, <laughs> Little Women is often called the first YA novel. And what she was encountering, which is so funny in writing Joe's Boys is, well, like, obviously the audience of this is kids who liked Little Women, but 
all the characters are adults now and they're all around the age of 20. So what do we call this? What's the demographic? Which is still, (laughs) I currently have to be like, okay, is this a YA project? Is it a new adult project? Is it just literary fiction? (laughs) What is the audience? So it's comforting to know people have always struggled with annoying marketing labels. Steven, this has been so good and I could keep going with you forever. Thank you for this. This is so nice. Thank you so much for being here today and adding so much to the conversation. You're Where so can- knowledgeable. I really thank this you. Was, this was a really fascinating and educative conversation for me. No, thank you. I mean, it's really funny in hindsight how I went to see Greta Gerwig Little Women in 2019 and walked out and was like, I just have to get a degree in Louisa May Alcott now. <laughs> but where can people find you online? How can they support you and your work? My social media handles are all super Mattachine. Mattachine is M-A-T-T-A-C-H-I-N-E, like the Mattachine Society. And yeah, I have a chat book that's called Chasers. It's on a press called New Michigan Press. They're really cool. They also put out a magazine called Diagram that I really like. So yeah. Stephen, did you know I wrote a pretty long, an 11,000 word long form thing about um, Dale Jennings from the Mattachine Society? Oh, no. Yeah, I, that was a whole rabbit hole for me. And I mean, if anyone is listening, that's you can find that on atavist.com. And I did a whole investigation onto this. Dale Jennings from the Mattachine Society was the first openly gay person to challenge a charge of moral indecency in court in the United States. He didn't want to do it. Like the Mattachine Society kind of made him do it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's always the case with these cases. Yeah. Like it's always and, somebody who's suing somebody who doesn't want to be suing somebody. So he basically got entrapped and was like, oh, that was a pain in the ass. I got entrapped by the cops. And then, oh my God, I should know off the dome, like the head, the orig- the founder of the Mattachine Society was named Harry Hay. And Harry Hay was like, Dale, this is more than most cases of police entrapment. This is especially stupid. You could actually get these guys and you should do it. And Dale sort of reluctantly went for it, but really didn't enjoy the spotlight or the fame or any of it. And it really, so I, I wrote a lot about that if you're interested in. Oh, totally. Yeah. Checking that out anyway. So you can find Steven online at Super Madison on Instagram, on Twitter, on all the places. And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. And you can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes, photos of Amy's capelet from the 2019 Little Women, all the important basics. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in a couple of weeks.